Now, a few years ago, um, a mom in Coventry, uh, Stephen Boyden, uh, eat the news headlines uh, because she was angry at her daughter's school. All right? What crime did the teachers commit that made Stephanie so angry at them? Well, apparently, uh, the teachers told the pupils that Santa Claus is not real. And, of course, this made Stephanie furious because uh, she said she then had to convince her 11-year-old daughter, Demi, that Father Christmas did, in fact, exist and the staff were wrong. Uh, she saw them as interfering in how she runs her home. And, of course, uh, given the days we are in, the school, in fact, apologized to her. Um, but that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, the, she took her anger everywhere, <laughs> uh, on social media and on television. She even spoke to one of the newspapers. Uh, she said to the newspaper, she said, It's my choice to keep my kids believing in Santa, but they have taken away the magic of Christmas away from her. And she was really um, very angry about this. The magic of Christmas, isn't it? We hear it in the songs uh, all the time. This is what Christmas uh, really is about today for many people. We hear about it everywhere. What is the so-called magic of Christmas? Well, it is really the secular spirit of Christmas. Uh, the tinsel, uh, the tree, the traditional presents, cards, the church, carols, and of course, Santa. That's the magic of Christmas. Now, there is nothing directly, um, you know, inherently wrong with most of these things. The problem is that this secular magic of Christmas has blinded many people to the true magic of Christmas. The true magic of God entering our world. Uh, and he hasn't just blinded them, it has made some of them even apathetic. I was speaking to my neighbor this uh, past week, and I was saying, are you looking forward to Christmas? <laughs> Our response was, no. <laughs> uh, it's just for children, isn't it? Christmas is just for children. And of course, I immediately corrected her. But you can see these two polar extremes, isn't it? Those that believe in the magic of Christmas and all of it, the secular spirit, and then the other people there that just think Christmas is for children. All of them are blind to, of course, the true magic of Christmas revealed to us in this historical account in the Bible. My God, this Christmas is to remind us of the wonder of Christmas. In fact, the true wonders, not just one, there are many wonders of Christmas as we read that account. I want us to continue, I want us to celebrate Christmas, especially when, he, when the day arrives, uh, with, with, with how God wants us to celebrate it, focusing on his glory and reflecting on, on his goodness to us in Jesus. And we, what we've been doing is we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're doing this verse by verse. We'll continue going through the Gospel of Luke even after Christmas. But in this moment, we are actually going through the Christmas narratives. Last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. We saw how God sovereignly worked through ordinary events to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem through that census of Caesar Augustus. And we saw how Mary gave birth to baby Jesus and led him in a manger. We learned three important truths uh, about the birth of Jesus last week. We learned that it was an act of divine sovereignty. God planned it all. We learned that in the Christmas story, we see that it was an act of divine faithfulness. God 
proved, kept his word. Our God always keeps his word. And Christmas reminds us first and foremost that God has kept his word. And of course, it was an act of divine humility. The baby laid in the manger. We saw how Christ has condescended, not only putting on our human flesh, but also to a degree putting on our poverty, our human condition as he laid there in, um, uh, in a manger, uh, as we were laid in a manger. Well, this morning we are picking up from where we left. We are looking at Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 20. This is a record of how God, through his angels, invited the shepherds, gave them that irresistible invitation to be the first visitors to see baby Jesus. It's probably one of the most, probably the most famous uh, story that people go to, um, or most loved story uh, of Christmas. Uh, perhaps with the competing with the Magi there, as it were, but certainly not Herod's murder of the, uh, of the innocents. There are two wonders of Christmas we learn from Luke's record uh, of the visit of the shepherds to the baby Jesus. Just two which are in your outline, which I want us to go through today. Two wonders. First, that God has come to serve us. We'll look at that, verse 8 to 12. And the second wonder of Christmas is that God has come among us to serve us by his grace, by his sovereign grace, as we shall see. Now, let's look at the first truth. God has come among us to serve us. We've heard it before and we see it again here in this passage. Look with me there at verse 8. It is nighttime in Judea, isn't it? Uh, we imagine we are somewhere near Bethlehem. Um, and we can see, if we're looking at this on the video, as it were, we can see a group of men are sitting outside. And as the camera perhaps zooms in, we can now see that these men are in fact shepherds who are caring for animals. Uh, they are guarding their flock, a single flock, uh, from predators in the darkness. And suddenly, as we look at this video, suddenly, burning light pierces the darkness. And in fact, here is how Luke describes it. And in the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. An angel of the Lord has appeared. We just pause there. The darkness around the shepherds has been replaced with a dazzling, glorious light. And it's important that we, we, we read that text. We'll come back to it later. It is all around them, right? It's not something just looking. It has shown all around them. And at this very moment, the shepherds are terrified. But in fact, there is nothing to fear, actually. There's nothing to fear. The angel has come to them with the best news they have ever had. The world has ever had. What is this news? Let's look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for, I, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel is saying, I have great news that will blow your mind away with joy. Great news for the people. And specifically, here, the people of Israel, right? The people of God. What is this wonderful news? Well, the angel goes on to spell it out. Look at verse 11 to 12. For unto you, we saw that 
phrase in Isaiah, isn't it? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Three important things immediately that the angel says that we should take note of, right? First of all, a baby has been born in Bethlehem. And this baby is the Christ. The Christ. is Christ the Lord. But think about that. The Christ. The word Christ is a Greek word for Messiah, which means what? Anointed. Right? In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed by God. They had, that means they had oil poured on their heads as a sign of their commissioning for their roles. We might say that King David was messiahed as king, anointed as king. Or Aaron was christened as a priest, anointed as a priest. They were set apart by God in a limited way in the great office of the Messiah. These people were not permanent office orders. They were caretakers of the great office of the Messiah. Their feet were too small to fill the boots of the office. It's a bit like your child coming over to your office and you know, logging into your computer for a day. They were a bit like that. Infinitely below what was required. The office was never meant for them. Their ultimate purpose was to point us to someone greater than all the kings, than all the prophets, than all the priests of the Old Testament combined. The baby that has now been born in Bethlehem. The angel is saying this baby who has been born has been set apart by God as his chosen Messiah. He is Christ, the anointed one of God. That's the first thing the angel says to them. Secondly, the angel is saying this baby who is Christ is not merely a human being chosen by God. He is, in fact, the Lord. He is God himself moving among us, we might say. The angel calls him what? Christ the Lord. We have come across this title so many times just in the first chapter when we looked at that. Right? For example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, we are told that the Lord, in fact, is the God of Israel. We also read it in Luke chapter 1 verse 25 when Elizabeth worshipped the Lord for blessing her with John the Baptist. And we read it in Luke chapter 1 verse 45 where Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. And interestingly, look at Luke 2 verse 9 there which describes the angel and the glory of the Lord. Do you see it? This Lord is the Lord of the angel here. And the angel has appeared to the shepherd with the glory of the Lord. And now in verse 11, in the same breath, the angel says, Christ is the Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's obvious what the angel is saying. The angel is saying to the shepherds, the sensation of good news is that God has now moved into your neighborhood. He has been born in Bethlehem. God is now here among us, dressed in the rags 
of human flesh. He has come as the anointed prophet, priest, and king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Why has God come? Well, that brings us to the third and final thing the angel says. He says the, angel, the, he says the Christ has come as a savior. The savior, we might even say. Right? Now, this is, look at that. It says, doesn't it? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, this is the second time in Luke we have come across this phrase, savior. Right? We first add it on the lips of Mary. As she praised God in Luke chapter 1 verse 47, she calls God my Savior. So in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, the angel is shockingly saying to us, Mary's baby is Mary's Savior. And in fact, this is also what the angel told Joseph in, in, in the account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, Verse 21, she, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means what? It means Yahweh serves. Jesus is God coming to save his people from their sin. His people, again in Matthew, specifically, is Israel. The context of the Christmas narratives is that Israel has rebelled against God. We talked about that when we looked at the Benedictus um, and the Magnificat. They have rebelled against God. God has now come in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. We'll emphasize that this evening. He's, he's a Jewish man to serve them. Jesus is the Savior of Israel. And as we read on the rest of Luke, we learn even the greater truth that the people of Jesus in the fullest sense of course now includes Jews and non-Jews who trust in Jesus as their savior. It is through the Jews that salvation comes and Christ has come as a savior of all who truly repent, Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is God coming to serve all repent and trust in him as they are only God and Savior. Jesus forgives our sins and gives us a brand new life with God. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord, God himself. And Jesus, we are being told here, is the Savior. The only Savior. And that reminds us something very important, isn't it? It's reminding us here that the biggest problem you have, that I have, is that we are sinners against God. Every human being is a sinner. This is what the Bible says in Psalm 14, uh, verse 1 to 3, that famous psalm which uh, is common to all of us. It says, the fool, I hope you're not a fool today, in all honesty, because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then the psalmist goes on to say, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven. Because you're doubting, who are these? 
who don't do any good. It's just the fool, those who don't believe in God. No, listen to verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. That's everyone. To see if there is any in the world, any in the world who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. That's you, friend. You have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Are you a good person? The Bible's answer is no. The Bible says there is no person without sin. All of us by nature are rebels against God. And our rebellion against God has left us morally corrupt. We are sinful in our desires. We are sinful in how we think. We are sinful in how we speak. We are sinful in how we act. To put it simply, friend, every one of us sat here this morning is an abominable person before God. To the core. And the reason why every human being is like this is because every person is born in this world cut off from having life with the God who created us. This is the legacy of our sin against God in the Garden of Eden. Ever since our ancestors Adam and Eve rejected God, we are all born without God and without hope in the world. You know, some people think human beings are like people who are half injured. They just need a small helping hand for them to get spiritually better. That's what some people think. Perhaps you think that this morning. But the Bible teaches that human beings are more like what? Not half injured, they are more like what? Corpses. Everyone is born with absolutely no life in them. No life of God in them. We are born dead in our sins. Cut off from the life of God. Look, human beings are like a man, right? Who has climbed all the way to the top of the shard in London Bridge, right? And then he falls from London Bridge and falls way down and everything is splattered everywhere. That's the condition of the human being. Spiritually dead. No hope of recovery. Pieces all over the place. We are, all of us, by nature, totally incapable of reaching out to God. This is how you are born. At the core of your being, you're a sinner and you don't even care. And by the way, this is why you can sit here and hear sermon after sermon and it still doesn't change. Because your pieces are splattered everywhere. No life of God in you. Your sinful nature is totally opposed to God who made you. And because we are spiritually dead, even the good things we do for God, you know, loving and helping others and attending church, singing Christmas carol, all those things, right? Oh, none of it pleases God. All of it, why? Because all of it is being done by a person whose pieces are splattered everywhere. And all of it is being perfumed by your sinful nature. Your sin is a stench to God. God can't accept anything we do. God can't enjoy what we do because we are dead. See, in order for God to take delight in what we do, we must be without sin. But that's just the beginning. We don't just need to be 
Without sin, we need His life in our hearts. We need regeneration. But we are not without sin, and we are by nature dead in our sins. And because of that, we are under the wrath and judgment of God. We are by default, all of us, heading for eternal suffering in hell. But the wonders of Christmas, the first wonder of Christmas, is that God has come among us to serve us by forgiving our sins and breathing new life in us, giving us a new heart. And it doesn't just do that, it gives us a great future. You see, when God gives you a new heart, he gives you new affections, new longings to live for him, new wanting of God. And then he gives you that new future, doesn't he? The great future in Christ. How does God how does God do this? How does the coming of God to be with us give us his salvation? Well, the angels here don't tell us, don't they don't. They just declare that God is doing this. But we know the answer from reading the rest of Luke. You see, as we read the rest of Luke, as we go through Luke, we'll see. As we read through this biography of Luke, right? If you go home this morning and keep reading it, you see that this baby who is God grows up. And then this Jesus dies a shameful death on the cross among criminals. And as he dies on the cross, right, he is dying not because he's a criminal, but because he is willingly choosing to die. You see, this is the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas is that Jesus was born that day on a mission to die for your place, in your place, on that cross. It should be you, as it were, being dying on there, being punished by God eternally in hell. But Christ willingly steps in, the God-man. And he dies for us. You see, the penalty of our rebellion against God is death, isn't it? Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you and I call God. But praise the Lord, as I like to say, praise the Lord that Paul does not end there. Right? He tells us, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was born to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion and sin against God. He died the death we deserve to give us peace with God. You see, the death of Jesus was not simply a physical death as it were. He wasn't just dying physically. When Jesus died, God poured on him all the everlasting wrath you deserve to suffer in hell. That's what happened on the cross. On the cross, Christ carried in his body and so the full weight of God's punishment that we deserve for our sin. Our Lord Jesus, friend, willingly suffered the wrath of God that you deserve. You know, our Lord knew the burden of our sin before he was born. He knew all the wrath of God that was going to be unleashed on him. And when Pastor Paul Raphael preached that wonderful sermon on Christ's agony, he reminded that. Even as Christ walked here on earth, he sensed that weight in Gethsemane. And yet, not only did he choose to come to be born knowing all full well, but he persevered. And he went to that cross to die for us. This is the wonder of this, this is the first wonder of Christmas. The birth of Christ is God coming to save us from sin, death, and hell. 
and give us a new life. Have you responded to the wonder of Christmas as you sit here this morning? I really don't know why non-Christians celebrate Christmas. I really don't. I just don't get it. Because in the death of Christ, it's not only a proclamation of salvation, beloved. It's a proclamation of judgment. If you don't submit to Christ this Christmas, and you proceed to celebrate it, you are embracing judgment. You are only celebrating the evidence against you on that great day. And of course, when you die, you go straight to hell. This Christmas, respond to the truth, the wonder of Christmas. Repent and submit to him. Become truly born again. Become truly his child. You can do that this morning. Cry out to him to save you this very moment. So the first wonder of Christmas then is that the birth of Christ is God coming to save us from sin, death, and hell. God has come among us to serve us. That's the first wonder. The second wonder is also in your outline, isn't it? The second wonder of Christmas is that God has come among us to serve us by his grace. By his sovereign grace, we might say. Let us rejoin our narrator, Luke. So the angel, we've heard from the angel, the angel has finished telling the shepherds that the good news of Jesus is that Jesus has been born. And suddenly, as the angel is saying that, uh, he is not alone. Look at this, 13 to 14. And suddenly there was with the angel, this is perhaps Gabriel, with the angel Gabriel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The word host means army. So what we're seeing here is a large army of angels. If you're watching this on video, they are praising God for the birth of the Lord Jesus. By the way, it doesn't say they're singing. Uh, it's most, they're just speaking, most likely, right? There's nothing wrong with assuming they're singing. I'm just saying you're reading into the text if you assume they're singing. Anyway, the, this large army is there, and they're praising and glorifying God for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, two important things that the angels are saying uh, in this, in, in their... In, in, the, in their song, if you call it that way, um, in verse 14. Two things I want to draw to your attention. First, they are confirming what Zechariah told us in Luke chapter 1, verse 78 to 79, that Christ indeed is a rising sun who has come to bring us peace. You see, all human beings, as I've said, are at war against God. Paul tells us that, isn't it, in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, verse 21 to 22, we are at war against God. But God has come to reconcile us to himself. He has come to repair the breach of peace that we caused by our sin. He comes in Christ as the reconciler. He comes to give us peace with God that then results in the peace of God and results in peace with one another. It's a spiritual peace that also translates in the material peace in the here and now, and of course, perfect peace in the future. So that's the first thing. Christ has come to bring us peace. 
Secondly, the angels are clear on who God is promising this peace. Don't miss that. Did you see that in verse 12? In verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, that's the correct translation, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the best translation. The angel is saying plainly, it is peace among those with whom God is pleased. The angels are not saying peace will come to every person. Jesus didn't come to bring peace to every individual. God has never promised peace to every soul. Salvation is not general. It is restricted. The offer of salvation is to all. But the salvation itself, the efficacy of that, if we might call it, is for those with whom he is pleased. The force of this statement is that the peace of salvation is an act of free and sovereign grace of God. It is God resting his favor on some individuals. The angels are teaching actually the doctrine of election. God's gift of peace comes only on those whom God is pleased to call to himself in the Lord Jesus. Those people whom God chose before the foundation of the world and he has chosen these people to be served by his sovereign grace alone. Peace on earth among those, among those with whom he is pleased. Luke is teaching us here through the words of the angel, the angels, that Christmas is a gift for God's elect people. Those whom God has called by his grace. And this truth that God relates to us by his grace is actually underlined by what Luke says next. How the story now unfolds going forward. Notice that as soon as the angels disappear, what happens? The shepherds are buzzing, aren't they? Let's read on. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I imagine them, right? You can imagine them perhaps as well. They are saying to each other, we must go now. Forget the ship. I mean, God will surely look after this ship if he sends his angels, right? In any case, it is worth the risk, right? Let us go and see this baby for ourselves. The baby who is God, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior. This is the one we've been waiting for. And so what do they do? They live behind the ship. And they make a night dash for Bethlehem. We're not, we're not sure how far they are from there, but they make a night dash there. And perhaps with some asking around, they soon find Mary's baby. So let's read on verse 16 to 20. And they went with Est and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, that is a baby, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all heard it, wondered at what the shepherds told them. You could have a whole sermon around that, isn't it? But Mary treasured up all these things, the contrast, pondering them in her heart. And of course the shepherds. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
So the shepherds have gone, right? Uh, they, they have gone, they've seen the baby, they have reacted to what they have seen in the same way, by the way, as the angels who taught them have reacted. They have ended the day back at their station, glorifying and praising God for the sensation of good news of Jesus, for the birth of Jesus. But look at verse 20. It's more than that. Read verse 20 carefully. Notice how Luke writes it. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard as it was what? Been taught them. Oh, friends, it's good to read the text over and over again. As you read it, the truth emerges. It becomes clear. That word, when I read it for the fifth time, that word, them, struck me. Them. Who's them? The shepherds. And it is crucial. When we step back and observe the entire narrative, it unpacks itself, doesn't it? It is clear that this event, yes, is about the Christ child, but shockingly, it is very much about the shepherds. Because we know from verse 1 to 7, Christ has been born. The rest of this, that Luke takes so many verses to describe, more than it describes even the birth itself, it's because he wants our eyes on the shepherds. Them, them. I counted 22 times that the shepherds are mentioned directly or indirectly in this passage. And notice the important phrases that identifies them. In verse 9, the glory of the Lord, symbolizing the very presence of God, is what? Around the shepherds. Glory has descended on them. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord uses, if you like, Isaiah, now applies it to the shepherd. What does he say? Unto you. Unto who? Unto you, the shepherds, he says. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. He has come for you. In verse 15, they acknowledge that God has given them what? A special revelation. And so they resolve and see that which the Lord has made known to us. Who's us? The shepherds. Keep reading that and you see it. What will you see? You see that Luke has included this historical record. About the shepherd, which others don't include, right? About the shepherds, and has gone to the length of reminding us about them because he wants to make the point that Jesus has come for them, for the shepherds. Why is that important that Jesus has come for the shepherds? I believe it is because Luke wants to draw attention to the sovereign grace of God in choosing these shepherds as the first visitors. But what's so special about that? Well, the shepherds are the last people we expect to see in front of the queue. Why? Well, because if you know the condition of the shepherds at this time is that they do not enjoy a very good reputation at this time of the year. At this time, not just of the year, but when in this society they are living in, right? At this, at this period in time, I meant to say. I know the children love playing the shepherds, but the shepherds in year zero were not popular people. Because they lived out in the field, they were not able to fulfill their religious duties. And so they are regarded at this time by the priests as unclean. In fact, they're at the bottom with the lepers. But it's worse than that. The shepherds are also very despised at this time. They are regarded as liars and thieves. So much that their testimony is not acceptable 
in the court of law. The shepherds are beginning a theme we are going to see in Luke time and time again. That Christ has come for the outsiders. They are the real outsiders. And yet we see here that God has chosen them first. These bottom of the ladder in society sinners have jumped God's queue. Shockingly, ahead of the high priest, God could have called the high priest as the first witness. The rich, the powerful. No, God has gone for, for the very bottom of the barrel in my business. And this is the point, isn't it? This is the point of Christmas. God's invitation to the shepherds is, a, is, a, is, a, is an acted illustration of the truth that the angels spoke in verse 14. In, the, in verse 14, the angel told us, Glory to God in the eyes and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And we just seen, looks around this truth as it were, with this acted illustration of the angel. Because they represent those whom God has said. And we can see it. Reading this, at that time they would have seen it. The early church sees that. God chooses us. God chooses whom he serves. And he does it by grace. The shepherds did not plan this moment. It is God who called them by his sovereign grace. And inwardly persuaded them to accept the invitation. It's amazing how the whole things come together. I wish I had more time. But notice how God has done it. The angel actually never tells them to go there. It just gives the invitation. And that's because God sovereignly works in the heart, you see, and draws the shepherd. He conquers their will, we might say, to, to, to want what, what God wants. And they go off to see the baby. And here's the point. The shepherds don't deserve this, do they? And we can see that clearly. The high priest probably thinks he does. But the shepherds are clearly annoyed. And it should be obvious to us, the shepherds don't deserve this. In fact, no one deserves salvation. We are not saved by some qualities about us. We are not saved by our performance. We are saved by grace of God through Jesus. And the shepherds are a clear illustration of that. And here's the key. The call of God to the shepherds shows us that God chooses who gets to know Jesus. It's a hard truth for us, of course. But he does. And he calls them to himself by the proclamation of the gospel, which the angels have preached. And this call of God is irresistible. Those whom God wants to serve, he will serve. And this is the second wonder of Christmas, isn't it? So the first wonder of Christmas is what? God has come among us to serve us. And we've just seen the second wonder. The second wonder of Christmas you wouldn't think that Christmas is the place you find the doctrine of election, but it is. The second wonder of Christmas is that God has come among us to save us by his sovereign grace. So how are we meant to respond to these two wonders of Christmas? Well, let me leave you with two ways, just two ways uh, we can respond. There are more, uh, there are more uh, at least at four, but I'll leave you with two, right? Two ways we are meant to respond to the message, to these two wonders of Christmas. First, just by learning from the two groups there. First, we learn from the shepherds. Let's learn from the shepherds to truly believe the good news of Christmas. We must truly believe 
the good news of Christmas. Have you noticed that when the shepherds had the good news of the birth of Jesus, they quickly ran to Jesus with haste, the Bible tells us. As I said, they put Jesus first above all else. But notice, that was not the end of the story. When the shepherds saw Jesus, he changed them. That's the whole point of verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, they had heard and seen as he had been told them. Do you see it there? Uh, their encounter with Jesus has now filled them with praise and they are glorifying God for Jesus. And friends, this is what it truly means for us to believe in Jesus. It is not simply agreeing that the birth of Jesus is interesting or amazing truth of the Bible. Verse 18 gives us a group of people who did that. Verse 18 says, some of the people who heard from the shepherd all wondered at, uh, all it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But there's no rejoicing we are told from them. There's no response to this great truth they've had. The shepherds heard it, investigated it, and truly believed the truth, and it changed them. They went away celebrating that God has come to save us by his grace. What about you, friend, as you sit here this morning? Do you truly believe the good news of Christmas? Have you run to Jesus like the shepherds? He says, how do I know? Well, is your heart full of praise for Jesus? Are you warm towards him? Does your life show tangible evidence that you are resting on the truth and the person of Jesus? Is there evidence that you have this inner joy, this inner joy and inner peace in Jesus? Are you resting on Jesus? Can you look at these shepherds and say, I can relate to these shepherds. I've also run to Jesus. I've also come away praising and rejoicing in him. And I've taken Jesus where I work, where I live. It's changing the way I do. I, I parent. It's changing the way I relate at work. It's changing the way I, I do other things. Can you relate to that? Is your heart warm to Jesus? Do you love him? Is Jesus your passion? Well, if the answer is no, then there are only two possibilities, friends. Either you have seriously backslidden. Really backslidden. I'm talking about the lost son type of backsliding. Or you are not yet truly born again. You are dead inside. You are not yet regenerated. And you know what? Many people in churches are like that. Not truly regenerated. This is a serious issue. You know the condition of your heart. Are you anything like the shepherds? I just... I just want to ask you plainly, how long will you go on pretending your way to heaven? Faking it until you make it. Salvation must be tangible.
Christ must make your heart sing. It's a terrible thing. It shows a lack of love for yourself. To delude yourself to help. And we all have friends and we have spouses and we have family members. Beloved, this is the litmus test we must use with them. It should break our hearts if the people we are married to cannot show evidence that we see here. It should break our hearts when we have, if we have men in the church who are friends of ours and they don't show the evidence like that. It should break your hearts if your kids are not showing evidence like that. It should break your heart if your mom isn't showing evidence like that or your dad isn't showing evidence like that. Church is not a plaything. Thomas Boston says, no sin of yours will ruin you if you surrender to Christ. And nothing will save you if you do not. There is no salvation outside Christ, he said. Your heart must be truly born again or you will perish, friend. So today I beg you, beg the Lord to truly save you. Regardless of how old you are. Age is not an issue. I came to know Christ at the age of 13. Be born again today. And show you are truly born again. By following him through the waters of baptism. But the most important is cry out to him. To give you a brand new heart that loves him and lives for him. Second thing and I'll end quickly. The second response. So we learn from the shepherds to truly believe the good news of Christmas. Secondly. If you are a follower of Christ, true follower of Christ, you must learn from Mary to treasure and ponder the grace of Christmas, isn't it? What a lovely verse. We can spend, it needs a sermon of its own, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. All the things she had heard, all the work, ah, from chapter one. <laughs> She's pondering. She's delighted, we might even say, thinking it over, turning it over our mind. Our life is taken up with the grace of God. The good news of Christmas and the, the grace of Christmas that God has shown them. Remember the magnificence and the joy that bubbles out of her there. And she tells about, she understands grace. God, my Savior, she says, has been good to me. God, friend, has come to us in Jesus by his grace. Are you a believer this morning? Oh. Don't let the truth of Jesus send you to sleep, beloved. That's the road to hell. Don't let it bore you. There is this question over your heart. Ponder afresh that God has come to save you. That the sinless one entered the sin-stained world to endure the penalty of sin and to stand in your place, friend. The, inf- the infinite one became an infant for you. The maker became despised for you. He was crucified and buried for you. He ascended into heaven for you. And he's coming in glory for you. All because he came that first Christmas. Beloved, adore Jesus. Treasure him this Christmas. Think over, ponder over, afresh the truth of Jesus. 
Uh, do not let the material blessings of Christmas distract you from the grace of Christmas. This Christmas, feast afresh on the grace of God. That came that first Christmas. And think of this. It didn't come for the world in general. Christ came to bring you his elect unto himself. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Ponder afresh that you are not the author of your salvation. That you bring nothing to God except your sin. And all that you have comes from God in Christ because God chose you before the foundation of the world. Meditate on that. And the more you meditate on the truth, the more you love Jesus, the more you love Jesus, the more you are to grow to praise him for his infinite love, infinite glory, infinite goodness, and his infinite wisdom, his infinite grace. And, and the more you love Jesus, the more you hate what Jesus hates, the more you drive to put sin to death, the more your relationship will be, will be working well, the more, the, the more all the sins in your life that seeks to rob you of peace and joy, you'll be actively putting them to death. Why? Because you are becoming more like Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more you love what God loves. The more your heart will be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. And you know what? The more you treasure the truth of God like Mary, this truth of God saving you by His grace, the more you'll be comforted in whatever challenges you're going through this Christmas. As you meditate on the grace of Christmas, you'll grow in being assured that Christ is already here in your life. He has put on your flesh to be with you. You stop feeling sorry for yourself. Oh, so many of us, we are constantly pitying ourselves. What's the antidote for that? Meditate on the grace of Christmas. Christ is not in your life because you made your up, friend. He's in your life because he has chosen to make himself known to you by his sovereign grace. And so whatever situation you are in, you are well provided for. It doesn't matter what the world throws at you. Because you have been chosen by him, by his grace, your life is not powerless anymore. You are not alone anymore. Christ is with you. Look, you may be physically alone, but you are never alone. He is in your every moment. This is why he came that first Christmas. To be your ever-present and living Savior. So trust him, ponder on this truth. So to summarize then, take away from the shepherds. Well, it teaches us two wonders of Christmas, isn't it? The first wonder is that God has come among us to save us. And the second wonder is that God saves us by his sovereign grace. How are we meant to respond? Well, we've seen we must ensure that we leave this chapel. Before we leave this chapel, we leave it as people who have truly believed the good news of Christ. The good news of Christ coming that first Christmas. And secondly, we must ensure as true believers that we're growing in treasuring and pondering the grace of Christmas. Amen.